Al Anderson Afternoons, the podcast. podcast. Coming up, Kevin Klein, the chair of the police board on this review of Air One. Also, we'll go to Saskatchewan and talk to Corey Lorat about that province's protection and response team. Could something like that help our police here in Winnipeg as they struggle? And Dr. Cyrus Dirksen will join us on the podcast as well. Please rate the podcast. Please subscribe to the podcast. And now, the podcast. is the councillor, of course, city councillor for Charleswood, Tuxedo, and Westwood. He is also the chair of the police board, and he joins us here this afternoon. Good afternoon, Kevin. Good afternoon, Al. Your initial reaction to this report? Uh, you know what? I'm very pleased with the report, actually. It, uh, it is a, an example, a really good example, of how governance is put into action because this uh, the chief did this because it was uh, a step required uh, when we implemented the strategic object, uh, objectives, the, uh, they had to, you know, tell us if it was being effective and efficient. So I'm I'm happy what came out of this. And based on the report, it appears as though we're getting pretty good bang for our buck. Looks like we're getting really good bang for our buck. I think it has certainly helped uh, in a lot of cases. It helps our officers. It improves public safety, and it's only in the air for 1,000 hours, and it didn't even stay in the air 1,000 hours in 2018. Is that one of the issues with this helicopter, though, that it's not used enough, maybe? Well, it's a budgeted item. I think, uh, you know, uh, Calgary, Edmonton have two helicopters, and we d- we see this as a, it's a budget issue, of course, and if you look at it, it's cheaper than uh, uh, running a police cruiser. Yeah, I was surprised at that number. So was I. I. I think, you know, we had the impression and the public had the impression that it was a lot of money. But uh, it really is, um, you know, this is everything. It's vehicle maintenance. It's everything. It's salaries. And I, I was very shocked at that. I thought that was very good. So let me ask you a question. Should we have two like other cities? You know, again, I think that that's a discussion that uh, has to be had surrounding the budget, uh, surrounding uh, the many other issues we have going on right now. Um, I, it, obviously, we want to look at improving public safety. Will that help with what we're facing today? You know, do we have the money to allocate more towards that? Do we have the support of uh, other levels of government to uh, to support that? Maybe, maybe if there was another one, maybe it could work in conjunction with the other services throughout the province and be available for them when when uh, emergencies or critical issues happen. So there, there's things to look at. But uh, you know, my personal opinion would be we'd have to answer all those questions before we started saying, "Oh, let's get another helicopter." Kevin, thanks a lot. Thank you, Hal. Kevin Klein, the uh, chair of the police board here in Winnipeg, commenting on this new report from MNP, a review of Air One. Two thumbs up. Looks good, people. uh, And by the way, our question of the day at cjob.com relates to this. The question is, do you believe Air One is valuable? Your choices, yes, but it should have more air time. Yes, just an outright yes, or an outright no. We talked about, you know, should there be another chopper or should this chopper have more air time? The number one answer right now at cjob.com to our question of the day, do you believe Air One is valuable? At 56%, yes, but it should have more air time. So over half of you who have voted at cjob.com like it and think we should have 
it up in the air more? 32% say yes, and the rest, almost single digits, just barely into double digits, saying no. So it seems as though this reports, and you, like Air One, you believe it is uh, definitely valuable. In Saskatchewan, they have something called the Protection and Response Team. And joining us now to talk about it is uh, Corey Lorac. Corey is the Executive Director of Police Quality and Innovation in Saskatchewan with Corrections and Policing. Good afternoon, Corey. Good afternoon. Thank you very much for doing this. I had a listener actually tell me about Saskatchewan's Protection and Response Team, and I thought it was sort of an interesting concept. Explain it for me. Well, back in uh, 2016, the Premier in Saskatchewan here called for the creation of a caucus committee on crime reduction. Obviously, we were getting uh, some complaints about the high crime in the rural area, and the Premier struck a committee, which we they went out and did consultations throughout Saskatchewan, uh, listening to the residents and the people in the rural areas. And then, uh, as a result, that committee made some recommendations, and we... Uh, and that's one of the recommendations was the creation of the protection and response team or provincial response team. And how's it been working? It's been working good. Uh, you know, anytime you start something new, there's a lot of, you know, growing pains. Uh, you know, f- you know, first of all, we had to get to, we had to make sure that the conservation officers and the, uh, uh, the commercial vehicle enforcement officers were trained to a certain level uh, that would match almost a, pl- a full, full blown police officer. So once we got through that and, and added the training and added the equipment, um, and then they started uh, responding and backing up the RCMP in rural, uh, mainly mostly in 911 calls or, you know, crimes where, you know, there's a, a, an urgent need for backup. Uh, it's no different in Manitoba. The Saskatchewan RCMP uh, police the rural areas, and in some cases uh, they might not be the closest peace officer. And if you need backup within five to ten minutes and the conservation officer can respond within those five or ten minutes, then uh, the RCMP uh, Operational Command Centre respond and, and call them out as, as a backup to the RCMP jurisdiction. And this protection and response team only deals with rural areas. It doesn't go into Regina or Saskatoon, eh? That's correct. And it hasn't yet, uh, but, you know, having said that, there's nothing precluding, uh, you know, an RCMP member backing up a city police officer if that's the case, if something happened in the... Uh, in the municipalities or, or what have you. Well, and that's why I wanted to talk to you today. We've got a real crime problem here in Winnipeg. We've got a real meth problem. It's a crisis. Uh, we heard from our police chief this week, Danny Smythe, in a letter to his uh, officers saying, hang in there. I'm going to continue to lobby government uh, for help. And, I mean, we're seeing calls in the queue, uh, calls for service in the queue uh, three, four hundred. Uh, it's been just crazy of late. And so, uh, in discussing what we do about this, this idea from your province came up. So, you you think it could work possibly in a city as well? Well, there'd be a lot of logical or logistical error or issues that you'd have to address. But again, uh, it depends on the circumstances. I don't know the circumstances in Winnipeg, but. Here, I mean, we could uh, it could work here, we, and I'm just speaking on behalf of Saskatchewan. We sure. have a a combined uh, traffic services unit here that has you know uh, the municipal police service uh, working with the RCMP on you know in the city and also in the uh, high on the highways. 
And you feel like it's having an impact in rural Saskatchewan? Well, we don't have any evaluation data to, to back it up yet. To, you know, they've been certainly responding and backing up. Uh, you know, the conservation officers have backed up the RCMP on, on a number of calls, and so has the, the commercial vehicle enforcement officers. And, and having said that, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty early in the, in the project. Uh, you know, we've, we've got everybody just about fully staffed, and then uh, it's a matter of just running it for a few years to see how well it's going to uh, roll. Right now, the early indications are is that it's, it's working. Certainly, they've, they've backed up the police on, on major crashes. Uh, one example would be the humble bus crash where, you know, the conservation officers came in and assisted on that tragedy immediately. And uh, that, you know, it, it started after that, that we, they started working much better. Um, you know, the call-out procedures, uh, we had to work out a lot of those little uh, errors uh, through the RCMP, through the 911 call centre. Um, but it's something that we came to ground and, and, and we're slowly... Uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, improving the, the response times on that. Well, it's an interesting concept. You know, we're we're talking here about do we redirect resources? Do we take traffic cops and put them on the front line? If we do hire another hundred officers, let's say we decide we need a hundred officers right now. If we hire them, then we deal with the crime, and now we've got a hundred officers. It would seem to me that this idea of taking officers from other agencies and moving them where they're needed is is a good idea, and it seems to be working there. For the most part, it's working for us. Yes, we're we're uh, looking to improve, you know, rural safety for our residents, and uh, you know, we had. Uh, on the on the highways, we had some not so good fatal collision st- uh, statistics that were quite high. So we had to do something, you know, and we had to bring those statistics down, and we had to respond to uh, rural rural crime in a, in a quicker fashion. So certainly, it is, uh, you know, it is working here. Corey, thanks a lot for telling me about it. I appreciate it. Thanks, Al. Corey Larat, he is the executive director of Police Quality and Innovation with Saskatchewan Corrections and Policing. What do you think of that? Saskatchewan has a protection and response team. It works in rural Saskatchewan, but could something like that work here to help out our police in Winnipeg when dealing with the meth crisis, an increase in crime, a spike in crime? Dr. Cyrus Dirksen joins us, drcyrus.com, D-R-S-Y-R-A-S.com. Hello, Cyrus, how are you? Very good. good. Very good to be here. Good to see you. Uh, I told uh, Carolyn Klassen this yesterday, my mm. regular guests, I am off next week. You will get the opportunity to work with Kathy Kennedy. Well, she is wonderful. We will miss you, but uh, I hope you have a good time. Thank you. I need the break. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I don't get a week off soon, I will be visiting you in your office, <laughs> uh, basically. But yeah, Kathy's great. You're going to have fun with her. So she will be here next week, as you will be next Friday. But we've got a few things we want to talk about here today. Um, here's the headline. Just seeing green space mm. may ease cravings for alcohol, cigarettes, and junk food. We know that being outside, I think, is relaxing mm-hmm. and, you know, we yep. enjoy it. I think it brings the stress level down. But really, it, it helps you uh, when it comes to cravings for all those bad things? Well, this is part of uh, kind of the stress response. And the reason why, I mean, they don't get into this, I don't think, in the in the research here. Yep. But uh, the, I, the idea that stress is a part of addictions is maybe interesting to some people. Uh, because people are often looking at ways to kind of get out of stress or to get out of uh, to get out of addictive responses, right? And because 
like uh, different substances or addictive um, behaviors actually trigger your stress response. It's like using that part of your brain. It's kind of co-opting it. Uh, so instead of having you know good things be in there, you know triggering your reward responses and stress responses, you're actually having the chemical do this. Then what happens is the stress response that you have everywhere else becomes incorporated. So if you lower your stress, uh, it's not as triggered. If, hmm. if, so if you trigger somebody's stress when they're trying to come off of a substance, all of a sudden you'll find that they are much more likely uh, to experience the cravings that they would have. Typically. And so anything that actually reduces stress would be good for somebody in this situation. It makes me think of rehab centers, which often have a lot of green space around them. Yeah. And I think that's maybe one of the reasons why it's more helpful. It's because these are away. It's it's less stressful. Mm. I mean, we often think of rehab centers as being a place where, you know, you can't get away from it. And that's why it's helpful. But I think a lot of it is just there's lower stress. So yeah. people can manage these cravings a lot easier. And when we're stressed out, then we might reach for a cigarette or mm-hmm. a drink or food, junk food. That's right. So that's the connection to stress. And yeah. then green space lowers the stress and yeah. may affect your, your cravings. That's right. And then the other thing that's interesting, in a, when your cravings start to go up and when you're stressed out, your frontal lobes actually stop working as well. So it's kind of like you get this craving saying, you know, I want that cigarette. And then the front of your brain says, oh, that's not a good idea, but I'm weak now and I can't do anything to stop you. (laughs) So that's what happens when you're addicted to something. And so people wonder, well, where does your motivation go and all these things? And it's because of willpower. Willpower, yeah. It's actually the substance that that is kind of overtaking your reward center. And so the reward center is there to kind of help you be motivated. And because, you know, cigarettes or, you know, gambling or other kinds of substances have taken that over, you don't have the motivation anymore. And you can't think about anything. You can't think in order to get yourself to do things. The willpower is gone. Mm -hmm. You're a real research geek. Like, you love digging into this stuff, Oh, yeah. And I find it so interesting that maybe, you know, in 5 or 10 or 15 or 20 years from now, Research like this that we say, oh, there's kind of a connection there. Yeah. It, it could end really horrible things that we deal with today. It's it's kind of going into public policy. I mean, mm. maybe we need more green space in our cities or something right. like this. You know, if we turn our entire city into a rehab center, you know, kind of relaxing. Yeah. All of a sudden, some of these problems might actually be easier for people to overcome. It's It seems like, well, how could there be a connection between building a park in my neighborhood mm. and lower levels of cocaine use, but there might actually be a connection like that that can be made. Just Mm. increasing, you know, having 25% of your space be green space, you know, and around you can actually make a difference. Uh, I think one of the other research we did another week was talking about if you spend two hours a uh, week in green space, it actually starts to make a difference. It has to be a certain amount. But if you do that, it makes a big difference. So when you, and I maybe you don't see it all the time, and maybe tell me if you do, do you see people that come in and say, Doc, I got to get my drinking under control or mm. cigarette smoking or any of that kind of stuff? Yeah. Like, how do you deal with that in, in your practice? It's, uh, it's usually um, trying to increase people's emotion, uh, motivation. It's trying mm. to increase people's motivation in order to overcome the problem. Sometimes uh, people come in quite motivated, but usually that's what we're working on. So we talk a little bit about where they're at now, where they want to be, and the difference between that. That's mm. one way to motivate a person. Uh, increasing their autonomy. We're going to talk about that a little later today. Increasing their autonomy uh, so that they feel like they're the ones who are actually making the difference in their life. Mm. Looking at triggers around them. Uh, so things that might make them think about the activity that they're trying to avoid. Like, yeah. like, like you're a, hanging out with friends who are drinking mm-hmm, all the time, yeah. so that's probably not good yeah. for you if you want to yeah. stop drinking. That's actually a, a really big one. Friendships are a, a lot of times people can manage to give up a substance. Uh, they'll think of a time in their life when they were able to give it up. 
but they have difficulty giving up their friends. Hmm. And so I have to say, if, if people are actually willing to change their social circumstances in order to change their life, that's one of the biggest predictors in my practice of people who are actually going to be able to make a long-term changes if they're willing to be like, you know what, yeah. I just can't be around these people anymore. And oftentimes people are trying to find a way to kind of still stay where they are and just manage it differently. You I'll deal with it, uh, but it's tough. Eh? Yeah, it, that's a lot harder. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, you know, and smokers, right? I mean, we see mm-hmm. the smokers outside mm-hmm. the building. They yeah. gather and, hey, yeah. you want to go for a puff? And, you know, <laughs> I, right? It's that it's sort of... It's a lot of, harder. Yeah, it's that yeah. circle, right? Mm-hmm. People want to be with their friends. And oftentimes, if they give up their friends, they don't know how to be with other types of people in different mm. circumstances. Sometimes these substances have defined enjoyment for them in their life. It's like, how do I actually enjoy myself without alcohol? Some people out here might be thinking about this right now. If I couldn't drink anymore, could I actually have fun? Wow. And uh, the idea that you can't have fun without alcohol is one yeah. of those things that really stops people from changing their lives. Huh, crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, next headline, leaning on others to become more independent. That goes against, you know, it doesn't make sense, but uh, leaning on others may help you become more independent. It is an interesting idea, and and they were looking at teenagers and, I guess, children, teenagers, and young adults as they get older, kind of what are the things that predict them being independent by age 25? And what they were finding is that, yes, if a a young person was actually willing to ask uh, and seek advice from their mother at age 13, if they were willing to seek uh, help from their friends at age 18 or from a romantic partner at 21, so as they go, you know, the place changes where they're getting help from, but if they're willing to do that, they actually are more independent and are asking for less help when they're 25. And this is actually something I noticed in my own life. I remember there was a time when I felt more threatened by the advice of other people. Yep. And um, it's actually a step of maturity to be able to realize I can take advice from other people and it doesn't mean I have to do it. Mm-hmm. And that's actually much more of an independent state. If I feel controlled by other people and I have to like ward them off and keep them away in order to keep my own independence, that's a less stable independence than the ability to bring people close and say, tell me about this. Mm-hmm. And to know still, even though you're close, I can still say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do what I decide. But I actually know that I can make better decisions if I have people in my life. A lot of times people will feel like sometimes these disordered things, like I need to give my kids challenges or, or, and they do, but like these kind of pushes to make kids more independent will actually lead to more independence later on. But what we find is that kids who endure significant trauma, significant difficulty, or try to manage everything on their own actually do worse when they're older. So everything's developmental. When you're, when you're young, you're supposed to be asking your mom for help. You're supposed mm. to be getting care from your mom, and that will help them be independent later. You don't need your five-year-old to show independence already they yeah. can be dependent now and it will actually be a sign of health and when they're ready when they're developmentally ready they will become independent at that time you don't need to make it happen too soon mm-hmm. and and you know it makes sense when you think about it like that because if you want to find out about something you go mm-hmm. to somebody who knows about it and mm-hmm. you get advice That's and then right. you get uh, you know sort of schooled on whatever you want to mm-hmm. know mm-hmm. but sometimes when we're younger mm-hmm. and and we have life lessons to learn mm-hmm. we don't want to take that advice right? right i don't want it. but yet if you don't know something you go to somebody for advice so it makes yeah. sense if you're insecure you're probably not going to seek that help as much you're mm. going to be like oh i can't tell anybody i don't know what i'm doing yeah. i have to just hide this problem and do it myself and unfortunately, that's just not as healthy. And if you're insecure later on, you'll probably just leave all the decisions to other people and you'll be like, you know what, you just do it yourself and I'll just follow you and, and let you take care of me or mm-hmm. something like that. So we actually want people to develop more security, the security that allows them to seek help from others and not be threatened by it. Right. 
one more thought here before we take a break, a, a bit off uh, topic here, but with this, depending on the people around you that you lean on, though, mm. like, you know, how does that yep. affect what you become later in life, right? Yes, that's right. I mean, if you're going to a romantic partner for advice when you're 13, yeah, you know, like that's not where you should be looking. You, sh- you should be still looking for help from your right. mother at that mm-hmm. point. I mean, you're just entering adolescence. And yeah, so you can't, or if you're... So when we see kids mm-hmm. that don't have that support system yes. at an early yeah. age, it affects them down the road. That's right. Like you, you need to be, it's all about developmental appropriateness. Mm-hmm. I remember when we were raising our kids and we said, okay, they're not going to have any sugar yet. I remember people around us being really concerned that we were going to be like overprotective and stuff. And it's like, well, you know what? Like they're two, you know, like they don't need to know what sugar is yet. It's yeah. more powerful than, co- people would prefer co- sugar over cocaine. Like it's, it's the most powerful thing out there. It in, is. In eh? terms of a substance. Yeah. We don't need to be introducing our two-year-old to that when they're fine with carrots. Yeah. And, but yeah, you know, I remember the first day we gave them sugar and it's like, (laughs) I felt like a pusher when I was, you know, I was like, oh man. But I was like, I know you're going to get the sugar one day. I want to be the one to give it to you, you know, but, uh, but you know, it's all about developmental appropriateness, right? right? And, you know, like, so you want to bring them there when they're ready. Yeah. Al Anderson Afternoons, the podcast, is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you find your favorite podcasts.